The Capital Weekly Podcast is supported by TASSEN, the Tribal Alliance of Sovereign Indian Nations. Funding for the Capital Weekly Podcast is provided by the California Endowment and by TASSEN, the Tribal Alliance of Sovereign Indian Nations. Uh, greetings and welcome to Capital Weekly's regular podcast. I'm joined today by Tim Foster. Hello. And our special guest uh, for a multiple repeat performance is Paul Mitchell. Howdy. Owner of Redistricting Partners, Vice President of Political Data, Inc., or PDI, as they say. And uh, there are almost too many subjects to talk about now. We're chatting before the show. Um, what happens if Biden – let's talk presidential for a second before sure. we get to California. But what happens uh, – what are the numbers you see if Biden is in – and what numbers you see if Biden is out? And can we tell this early on? Well, you know, right now, and who knows when this airs, maybe something will have happened. But uh, right now, we do have a presidential race that is being somewhat defined by someone who's not yet in the race. Um, mm-hmm. Joe Biden casts a long shadow uh, in the Democratic field. And it'll be interesting to see what happens when he does or if he does announce. Um you know, a lot of what we're seeing is the effect of name recognition and obviously has huge name recognition. And you can see in the polling that the two candidates who generally top the field are the two that have the highest name recognition have been on the ballot before. Um, and I expect that when we do polling in California, we'll see the same thing is true, that uh, those two candidates start with really good numbers, even though we have Kamala Harris in the race that's who's from California. Um, now, just, doesn't Elizabeth Warren have pretty darn good name recognition? Why would think? Well, Elizabeth Warren hasn't been on the ballot in California. Okay. Um, Elizabeth Warren is has good name recognition. Um, and I think that there is some interesting facts about the Elizabeth Warren potential candidacy in 2016, her decision not to run, the decision of Bernie Sanders to run, and effectively him swallowing up a lot of the Elizabeth Warren movement. And one of the interesting things that we'll be looking for in, in polling going forward is how much she can reclaim those people who might have originally been kind of the draft um, Elizabeth Warren crowd uh, that went to Bernie and how many of those will stay with Bernie. Um, so there's a lot of dynamics. But right now, it's one of the issues about the polling is that it's really being overwhelmed by name recognition. Um, we're starting to see a secondary thing, too, which is when a candidate does catch a spark, um, like Pete Buttigieg, uh, we see them move up the polls pretty quickly. And it's mm-hmm. almost like the Democratic voters are saying, OK, we're going to check this guy out for a while. And, um, you know, everything about him kind of mm-hmm. goes viral right now. And I actually think that we're going to see this a number of times with different candidates who are going to kind of get their time in the barrel, where it's going to be, um, you know, a moment, a viral thing, something that captures people's attention. And all of a sudden we're talking about Cory Booker for a while. And then we're talking about Julian Castro for a while. When do you think that it starts to, to sort of winnow out and settle down? Yeah, I mean, I think, though, so we'll have debates. Those should kind of separate the wheat from the chaff a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, and but the ultimate like culling of the field from, you know, probably 12 real candidates in January to four or three real viable candidates in April. Yeah. That's going to be a function of the early primaries and obviously uh, the California primary and Super Tuesday. So 
Uh, after that, I think we'll see the Democratic field, you know, winnowing down to probably three or four significant real big candidates who have a chance to win. Uh, the, the fact that you see candidates pop up for a little while and go down because they're the sort of the shiny new object and they, they do well virally, for example, you know, does that translate to fundraising? Bernie's been doing good fundraising. Kamala Harris has been doing good fundraising. Yeah. Uh, and they're both spending money. The others have been doing less good fundraising. Uh, some have been sitting on their money for the times. pretty well. Rourke and... Um, he did, especially in this when he ran before, he did really well. He's doing well now. Yeah. But there's a whole, there's sort of a middle four there. There's a Rourke, and um, I think Harris might be another one. Maybe not Harris, but there's a Rourke, and there's Buttigieg, and there are people, there are four or five of them, and then Warren is another one, Amy Klobuchar. They're kind of in this middle level, and none has broken out yet, it seems to me. Do you see that in your numbers or no? Well, the, what's interesting, first off, about the fundraising is that the fundraising isn't as high as it had been in prior presidential election cycles, yeah. uh-huh. uh, in part because everybody's focused on these small dollar uh, fundraising numbers. And, uh, you know, so you're right, we have Bernie Sanders and Kamala Harris, who are kind of at the top of the field with 18 and 12 million, respectively. Um, O'Rourke, uh, 9 million coming off of a U.S. Senate race that was very high profile, which means not just that he has name recognition, but he also has a small donor base. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, that's invaluable. I think Pete Buttigieg number is really surprising. Uh, Seven million um, raised in, in the reason that it's really surprising is he comes from a relatively small city. People don't really know who he is. Don't know how to pronounce his name. And um, it's, it's, it's Mayor Pete. Pete. Um, but the, uh, you know, his ability to build this list without having some starting point of a big, huge, small donor base Mm -hmm. is, I think, probably the most impressive uh, from kind of a campaign mechanics. Like, how do you get from zero to seven million in small donor money without having, you know, gone to them before to get twenty five, fifty dollar donations in the past? Like somebody, you know, like like Beto O'Rourke has. Uh, Elizabeth Warren, six million. Amy Klobuchar, five million. Cory Booker, five million. I think that was probably a little bit. We would have probably thought a year ago Cory Booker would have been a bigger number to begin yeah, with. I remember. Um, and then yeah, Gillibrand. And then we get into the kind of lower tier of Inslee and Hickenlooper and Andrew Yang. Um, you know, Julian Castro. Those those candidates have raised enough money to make it into the debates. Um, they have kind of gotten their feet wet in the presidential race so far and getting a little bit of attention, um, getting their, their CNN town hall and, and yeah. building a little bit of a movement uh, for each of them. But still in the polls, they're all kind of single digits. And in their fundraising, they're all single digits. When, when it comes to larger donors, are they all going for the same people? I get this feeling that we have lots of candidates with similarities in thinking. Not Obviously, not they don't mm-hmm. replicate each other, but... They may be looking for the same donors or similar donors. Is how deep is the well for several of these candidates? Yeah, know? I mean, right now when we're talking about small donors, you know, you might see some small donors donating to multiple candidates because they want to have mm-hmm. a Pete Buttigieg make a chance to get into the to the uh, debate or something like that. Um, but when we get into the larger donors and we get into you know serious kind of max out contributions, yeah. these candidates probably are all trying to get the same set of you know, big Democratic donors. But at the same time, they're really, really focused on 
what is uh, seemingly more meaningful in the Democratic primary, which is to be able to capture large numbers of actual individual donors. Mm-hmm. We saw that in the uh, congressional races as well, the ability, kind of the act blue primary, you could call it. It's the primary mm-hmm. of uh, who can get the most people to go to their act blue website and donate you know, a small amount and show that grassroots support. You know, this obviously isn't the tactic used on the Republican side as much. Um, and we saw Donald Trump come out with $30 million raised. Yeah. And I don't think he's out there touting how many individual donations of $25 he got. And he's not burning through a lot of money at all, I would think. And he's got more than, I think, $130, 140000000 million total. He had hundred over $100 million the last time I heard. Now he had 30 in the last quarter. So yeah. he's just stockpiling dough here now. Yeah. Well, and the Republican primary is something that we did an article on yeah. that not a lot of people are focused on, but maybe should be... Um, you know, we have uh, Bill Weld jump in the race, yeah. and so that is something noteworthy. Um, but we also have a president who is extremely popular, especially among his base and especially among the kind of Republicans who we expect to vote in the um, presidential Although, primary. But when you say extremely popular, that's not overall. He's under I don't think he's ever been above 50 percent ever, has he? No, not Except extreme popular. Except for the Rasmussen poll. Yeah. I, just, I don't He's quite know why that is. not popular overall, but when we talk about the Republican primary. extremely unpopular yeah. overall. If we talk about the Republican primary, yeah. um, then in that universe, he's extremely popular. Yeah. Among Republican voters, depending on what poll you look at, look at, maybe he's at 89% approval, maybe 91, 92. And if we look historically at presidents who had challengers from within their party, so an intra-party challenge, um, we see those happened in the past when the presidential candidates were a lot less popular in their own party. Mm-hmm. So Bush is an example. There was a poll in 91 done that showed George Bush at uh, 73% approval among Republicans uh, you know, going into that presidential cycle. Which is pretty amazing. That's high approval. Really. It's not so bad, but Carter was only 40% yeah. approval among Democrats. Uh, Ford was only 60% approval within his party, and LBJ was only at 57. So we look at these historic numbers, and Donald Trump is nowhere near those ranges. He has got solid, solid support. Here's a question maybe you can answer for me. So I have heard anecdotally that a lot of people have, a lot of Republicans have left the party in the wake of Donald Trump. Mm -hmm. They were not supporters of Donald Trump in 2016. And they left at some point, either when he was nominated or when he was won, or excuse me, when he won, or in the intervening six or eight months as he's done things that they couldn't countenance. They either left the party and became Democrats or left the party and more likely became independents. Is there anyone that's tracking those numbers? Is that legit? Is there a significant yeah. – is it 1% of the Republicans? Is it 5% of the Republicans? Um Well, it depends. I think you're really speaking to kind of your bubble or our bubble in that um, – a lot of the Republicans, when you look at people who are more kind of establishment in California, um, when you look at the, you know, some of the more highly educated suburban, kind of more progressive Republicans, yeah, a lot of them either they've either re-registered or more likely just kind of said like, oh, I'm an independent. They might not re-register, but then they just kind of like Got it. view themselves as being a little bit more independent. But that is. 
I wouldn't run with that and say that this is something that's happening nationally. There's but other so parts of the country where Republican Party has actually been growing and building and strengthening because of Trump. So, so are there any national? I mean, nationally, is there a number of how many Republicans there are nationally, and are those numbers available? And, and Democrats? Yeah, I mean, so nationally, first off, partisanship nationally, uh, it, it's all state by state. So in some states, they don't even save partisan registration. Got it. So, um, and I'm not an expert at the national stuff, you know, more focused here on California. Here in California, we do see an erosion of Republican registration. We see Republican registration when we look at like each two-week period of who's registering any given two-week period. We see Republicans being at, you know, 16, 17% some weeks, maybe up to 20, 21% but they are registering at a rate that's lower than their already record low rate of, you know, being 24 or so percent of the election. Is that registration in congressional district by district, or is it, you talking about county by county? We have it district by district, but it is managed county by county, and we track the statewide numbers as well as individual county numbers. Um, There has been some interesting things, and just to kind of tease one of the articles we'll be working on, I think probably for, we're getting the data we got the data today, and we'll be working on it for this week. Um, I know you're doing polling because I got an outrage. Not he was an outrage. Just another call about the survey. I always get. The, I can tell when you're polling because they'll call here and complain about something. Yeah, you yeah, know? Yeah. So I just refer him to you now. I feel that, much better great. about yeah. that. Yeah. So, he, was, he was very concerned that you did not have Tulsi Gabbard as an option. Oh yeah, he did, he did call me yeah. um, and emailed me. So yeah, Tulsi Gabbard has been added to the poll as one of the options. <laughs> okay. Um, the uh, so we are doing some polling. Uh, like I said, it's more like long range. We want to try. We're not going to be releasing top line numbers um, in the presidential race uh, anytime soon. We want to kind of build a data set over the next few months uh-huh. and okay. come out with something that's interesting to watch. Uh, how the re- the Democratic field is is building up in California. But uh, then you on the huh? uh, you mentioned earlier, or I saw a note from you that um, there might be a return to partisanship. Yeah, that's the other thing is that the on the registration numbers, we saw this thing happen right after the uh, new motor voter bill was passed and started to be implemented in, uh, you know, April May of uh, two thousand eighteen, just before the primaries, and that was that uh, we saw a ton of growth in people registering as no party preference and you know what we consider declined to state or quote unquote independent. Yeah. Um, and uh, we found after we looked at it that the driving force in that was literally just a change in the way they asked the question of, do you want to select a political party um, and, or do you want to be no party preference? And uh, so we're getting the data now, but it appears that since the new year, we've seen kind of a return to more partisan registration and a kind of a little bit of a of a drop in the people registering no party preference, and we're going to uh, be doing an article kind of like exploring why that's happening. Is so. the is the partisan the the, the party to who, to which they're going? Is that both Republicans and Democrats? Yeah, both. Yeah, yeah. Or yeah. is it more one than the other? Or no, can it's you just say? essentially like we've seen a drop in people registering NPP, and they're kind of huh, you know okay. proportionally going where they go. Um, We've also seen more people registering with that American Independent Party <laughs> yeah. again because it's the only thing that says independent when you register is 
American yeah. Independent Party. That Is there a say, legislative fix somebody's working on right now for that? I haven't seen it. Um, there's been discussion. I mean, the fact is that um, people are registering American Independent because they yeah. think it's independent. When we do polling and we ask American Independents what's their party, only 3% of people say American Independent. Um, uh, more people say they think they're Democrats or Republicans, and almost you know 70 or so percent say they think that they're yeah. independent or no party preference. Um, the confusion around it is rampant, and uh, there's been kind of a lack of willingness to really hit at this issue. Um, the number one remedy I see is to strip them of the name and make them call themselves what they're called in other states, which is the American Constitution Party or the Constitution Party. And now, was that intentional, or how, did, how does that I don't work? know that they intended for them to steal, you know, confused voters when they named the party. It was you know, back when they were trying to get um, George Wallace on the presidential ballot that they created the American Independent Party. Um, but it has transformed in the years with the growth of interest in registering independent is kind of like the place where people land when they want to register independent yeah. and they're just looking for something. Is that nomenclature state by state? I mean, yeah. you can, so you can yeah. call yourself whatever you want in this state. And then you can get on the ballot if you have the require the you meet the yeah. The I mean, Donald Trump was the nominee of the American Independent Party last in 2016, which people don't remember. Um, but um, you know the American. So you're saying the American Independent Party won? Like, yes, they like, did. He did. Yeah, that's right. Um, so uh, they're having a boom. They are. So the it's you know it's the American Confusion Party basically, but. Um, you know, there are some people who feel like it's a violation of kind of a First Amendment for them to be able to name themselves whatever they want. But then the competing factor is that we can prove voter confusion, a, f- a failure of the state to, um, you know, reach the voter's intent. The voter intent was to become an independent. Yeah. And there was a case in uh, Santa Cruz where a voter wanted to vote uh, as an independent in the Democratic primary and felt they had the right to vote you know, for Hillary or Bernie or whatever, um, was told, no, you're American independent. She said, that was not my voter intent. I want a ballot. And she voted in the Democratic primary, and they held that ballot until it went through a court case. And in that court case, the county registrar took the voter's side and said, yes, this voter was registered American independent because she thought she was registering independent. That yeah. was the voter intent. And based on that voter intent, she should be eligible to vote in the Democratic primary. So we're going to count that ballot if the courts will let us. And the court sided on the behalf of this voter and the Santa Cruz registrar and basically invalidated the American independent registration by saying that, no, this voter was confused and the voter intent was to be an independent. And that's true for 97% of the registrants in the American Independent Party. John, that, how, do, pl- <laughs> how do we not do a story on that, John? We're going to drop the ball. We've done stories yeah. on this. No, no I mean, on that particular, that, that case, case. Yeah. that case. Does that is out play there. out in the next, in 2020? I mean, does this Well, in 2020, continue? you're going to have, so there's going to be so much confusion in the 2020 cycle for independence. This is something that I know Lorena Gonzalez is a bill, AB 681, that, addresses kind of informing voters about this, but the underlying structure of how the primary is for independence, let alone American independence, is beyond confusing. Um, so if you're an independent voter, this I mean a real one, a NPP voter, or if you're in a party that doesn't have 
a candidate. It's an un- unqualified party like Reform Party or Beach Party or Pirate Party or whatever. Um, I remember the Beach Party. There you go. Yeah, you should be a member of that. There's a beer party. You know, there's people who just write whatever. Party yeah. How is the beer party not thriving these it days? It should be. So, not um, many people, but they're a fun party. They are. So uh, any of these folks who are are eligible for the Democratic primary – they aren't eligible for the Republican primary. That's closed. Right. So people know, oh, I have to re-register if I want to vote in the Republican primary. On the Democratic side, you can uh, get a Democratic ballot. So if you're a regular poll voter, it's super easy. You walk into the polling place. You get your ballot. They say, do you want a presidential ballot? You're like, oh, yeah. I'll take a Democratic presidential ballot. You go vote. It's like all there in person, very easy. Mm-hmm. For by-mail voters... It requires the county has to send them a little note card that says, you know, check this box if you want a Democratic ballot. You have to check that, sign it, return that in the mail in order for them to process the ballot that they send you as a a ballot that has the presidential races on it. If you don't fill out that card, you're going to get a ballot in the mail with no presidential candidates on it at all. It's it's very confusing, right? Um, And we have these factors in the electorate. One is uh, a growth of the people registering no party preference, as we talked about. Huge numbers and it's, you know, fastest growing. There's more people who are in this no party preference than there are Republicans, as an example. Um, So it's growing. On top of that, the more people are requesting to become permanent absentee voters. Two-thirds of people who register to vote online click the little box that says, yes, I'd like to receive my election materials in the mail. They might not even realize that they're vote by mail and they're going to get a ballot, but they're selecting that box. Third, a number of additional counties are converting to all-mail elections with vote centers for people who want to vote in person. So, uh, you know, if you're in in Orange County, Fresno, um, there's possibility of San Diego, Santa Clara, you know, if you're in in one of these counties that's going to be moving to the vote center model for 2020, then um, you might not know that. So they're going to have to send out these little postcards to every independent voter to ask them if they want a Democratic ballot. The ballots have to be mailed February 3rd. That means the ballots have to be put together in middle January. That means these little tiny postcards that get mailed out to what's probably going to end up being 16 million voters in the state. Um, Well, about five five million of those that are independents. Yeah. Um, those millions of little postcards are going to be mailed out probably between Thanksgiving and Christmas. So it's going to be holidays. These voters are going to get a little postcard. They're not even going to know what it's about. They might not know they're a permanent absentee voter. They might not even know they're supposed to be getting a mail to ballot. Yeah. They might not even know that they're independent. They might think they're already a Democrat or Republican. And if they don't sign the card and mail it back, then they're going to get a ballot in on February 3rd with no presidential candidates listed on it at all. And in 2016, we did some polling of voters who were getting vote-by-mail ballots that were independents. And we found that 40% of them that actually returned their ballots with no presidential candidates on them, 40% of them had actually wanted to vote in the Democratic primary, but didn't know how to. We also found that two-thirds of voters before the primary, didn't know how they were going to get Democratic ballots. How does that affect or does it affect our early primary? We've got an early presidential primary coming up this next time. Yeah, it really affects the primary. um, And it affects this early presidential primary, obviously, 
more because of the additional confusion of how early it is. But with the primary we're having here uh, in March, you can imagine uh, being a political campaign. And if you're counting on, say, you're Andrew Yang and you're trying to get the Asian and a lot of young millennial vote, or you're Pete Buttigieg and you're trying to get the LGBT or a lot of young voters or whatever your base is, um, or you're Julian Castro and trying to get Latino voters, or you're Bernie Sanders trying to get those independents that, that supported you in 2016. Um, in any of these circumstances, these campaigns have a, an additional hurdle before actually being able to earn the vote of an independent voter who's in the majority of the state that's going to be vote by mail and might not know about returning this little silly postcard to get the ballot. So you or Julian Castro, you not only need to tell Latinos that you're running and persuade them to vote for you, you also have to find out if they're not a Democrat, how they're going to get a Democratic ballot and making sure that they get that little postcard filled out. And all this stuff's going to have to happen before New Hampshire, before Iowa, before South Carolina, before Nevada. The other thing is probably a lot of these people are young, and young people are the ones who move more often, so that postcard may go to an old address. Yeah, I mean, one of the nice things is the another Lorena Gonzalez bill, uh, the same-day registration. uh, Not same-day registration. Well, same-day registration is one other thing. So same-day registration will allow potentially people to go and get registered, uh, in the past, in 2018, when it was first implemented, the primary and the general, it was only really being used in a few counties. Oh. Um, those counties that were under vote center model, and they do the same-day registration of the vote centers. A place like L.A. County would have like a couple locations open in the whole county, and very few people actually utilizing the same-day registration. There's legislation this, like, this, this year to try to expand same-day registration to every polling place in the state. The other thing is the automatic registration, which is, you know, what we commonly think of as the DMV, the new DMV registration. It also has this thing that not a lot of people have focused on, which is NCOA registration. And we have seen uh, national change of address. So the, uh, the Secretary of State's office gets lists of people who've moved and filed a change of address form. If they match the exact match, you know, Paul H. Mitchell, my address, uh, and they see that I moved in Sacramento, let's say, I moved to another part of Sacramento, they'll send a note to the county registrar that says, change his address, just do it. Or if I move from one county to another, they'll send a note to the LA county, like, hey, Paul moved here, change his address. Um, So they'll update my registration automatically. If the name's not perfectly matched, so it's just, you know, Paul Mitchell and there's something wrong with the address or it's misspelled or something like that, then they will send a note to the county registrar that says, send this guy a note card to see if he's moved. And if it returns to sender or if he responds back that, yes, he's moved, then changes voter registration. And when you say they, you mean the Secretary of State? The Secretary of State's the one that's sending it to the county registrars, and the county registrars are changing the registration. So people aren't focused on this, and maybe we'll do a little story on it, but it is a kind of secondary... Um, benefit of this automatic voter registration that we're getting a lot more automatic updates of registrations when people move and that's primarily benefiting those kind of like 25 to 34 year olds who you know are moving enough uh, to really have a lot of benefit from this and also kind of stable enough to care to do a change of address for them I mean I don't know if 18 19 year olds do change of address forms but you know 30 year olds do can you do them online 
I don't know. Um, At the end of the day, isn't this a function of the Secretary of State's office to educate us on the issues of the election? I mean, it seems to me the state's elections officer um, should be the person, should be the office, should be the entity that tells us how to do all this. Oh, what an optimist you are, John. (laughs) So there's a couple things. Um, One is we still have elections run by 58 counties in California. Uh And... Um, and the Secretary of State's office can have a significant role in, you know, obviously they establish vote cal and they establish the online voter registration system and they handle a lot of the regulations that have to do with elections and they qualify, you know, voting machines and all that. They have a lot of roles. Um, but we still are a, a system where the power is disseminated to each of the 58 counties. It actually is in some ways a good thing because you don't have to worry about like let's say the the this monolithic big election structure the fact that we have all of our elections run by all 58 states and within the 58 yep. states we have them run by all these little county officials it seems antiquated but it does kind of disseminate that power uh, to a lot of local people um, and allows for maybe a system that isn't so you're not as worried like uh, somebody's gonna flip one switch and the whole system's gonna demolish mm-hmm. um, the other thing is that the Secretary of State and the legislature have the power to, you know, tell counties do X, Y, and Z, but they have gotten into the habit of telling them to do it, but not giving them the money. Um, and so oh, they yeah. don't create mandates, they create, uh, you should really do this new thing, and if you do this new thing, you should really do it this way, and, uh, you know, not really kind of like forcing them all to uh, come up with the same structure. So we do have you know, a lot of counties doing somewhat different things within the confines of, of the law, and the Secretary of State's office doesn't really get to run one big statewide election with, you know, running all the structures and making sure everybody gets what their ballots all look like. It's the counties mm-hmm. that do that. Well, one last question. Do you think going into the presidential election, to, into 2020, that the confusion this time around is going to be more or less, more or less, or the same that we've had in elections before with people registering for parties they didn't know they were registering for. I think it's going to be more. Um, I think there's going to be more confusion. Um, One, we know that there was a period of essentially nine months or so where, you know, we had uh, a lot of DMV registrants. We saw this, we saw that almost a third of Democrats and Republicans that went into the DMV when that system was first established, were leaving as independents. And many of them did not know they were registered as independents. So that's going to be, there's a big chunk of the electorate that is kind of confused about the registration. The American independent thing is going to be a, it continues to be a growing thing. Mm-hmm. The fact that we're having a March primary uh, is going to add to confusion because a lot of the kind of prepping for the election, getting those little cards done, all that kind of stuff is going to be scrunched up with, you know, Thanksgiving, Christmas. Super Bowl, you know, it's just like all of a sudden, all of a sudden an election comes and it seems like it's a little quicker. So um, the number of candidates will be interesting, probably create a little bit more of a volatile election cycle. Um, You know, us being Super Tuesday um, is going to be interesting and lend to, like I said, volatility is I think a a good way to think about it because we're going to have, you know, the New Hampshire primary I, well, first Iowa caucus is then New Hampshire primary, and then a little bit of a break, and then we're going to have Nevada, 
uh, in South Carolina is the Saturday before our election. Mm -hmm. And so uh, that plus debates that are going to be happening in that period of time Mm -hmm. are going to give a lot of chances for presidential candidates to, you know, maybe break through and for, you know, potentially some surprising things to happen. Mm -hmm. Okay. Paul Mitchell, thank you very much. Fair enough. Uh, Tim Foster, thank you. Thank you. And this is John Howard, and we will see you at the next podcast. Thank you very much. Thank you very much.